Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the twice-weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you for tuning in wherever you are in the UK and indeed around the rest of the world. And as you all know, the second podcast of the week, we have a conversation. And I'm thrilled today to be having uh, a chat with Lord Finkelstein, Danny Finkelstein, Daniel Finkelstein, known as all kinds of things, who has always interested me uh, uh, because in a way... I think anyway, he has the dream combination of being immersed in politics, but also in political journalism. He's just written another book uh, and has also got the dream of being on the board of his football team. I mean, Danny, I envy every element of that. Is it as good as it sounds before we delve deeper? Yeah, the the, the football bit is a big responsibility, actually. And when you go to games, I mean, I've been going to to Stamford Bridge for 50 years. I'm actually sitting there now, in fact. Uh, I've been going to uh, Stamford Bridge for 50 years. And obviously, you take all the defeats, like, seriously. uh, But suddenly, you feel, actually, I've got a sense of responsibility to other fans to try to do something or to make sure that fan views are registered with the owners of the club and things like that. So it's, it's added that element into it, but it's an amazing thing to do. I, I, people always ask me, is it a dream? And I say, well, it would be if it ever occurred to me to dream of it, but it didn't. <laughs> See, I, well, I'd like to ask you a bit about the football at the end, but I, I've always thought that in a way, certainly for political columnists, it actually helps them to be involved in politics or at least have a desire to do so. So when you took the peerage, I know some people tweeted, you know, how can you carry on being a commentator and all the rest of it? I didn't think that at all. But have there been dilemmas arising from being a Tory peer writing a weekly column? The peerage, not in itself, actually, not really, because it isn't an office. And you're independent, uh, you know, despite the fact that you're nominally a conservative, you you have the freedom to decide and to speak how you like. And I've never had a problem with uh, saying or writing anything. I mean, for instance, I very strongly took the view that Boris Johnson's behaviour was completely inappropriate, and that he should resign. I wrote that often. Despite that, nobody in the House of Lords ever attempted to suggest to me that was inappropriate for me to do. And had they done so, I would have told them that that wasn't an acceptable uh, constraint. So the peerage hasn't, but there is a complication in politics, and that is caused by your personal relationships. All journalists have this to a certain degree, even those 
who are straightforwardly reporting, you know, have relationships with their sources that they're trying to maintain. You saw this up in the run-up to the 97 general election without any question. Labour's coverage was influenced by the fact that people knew that Alistair Campbell and Peter Mandelson and Tony Blair were going to be the source of future stories and that the Conservatives were only capable of giving them some stories between now and election day, which wasn't long off. And I suspect we're going to see a similar process there. So, and I had more complicated relationships, which were just inevitable. Some of the people who ended up being at the top of politics, in particular George Osborne, but also David Cameron to some degree, uh, were were personal friends of mine. They'd been political allies. We had shared a lot of uh, debates and they weren't going to stop being that. So I had a choice to make about it. And I decided, you know, the best way of dealing with that is to be completely straight with everybody, with the readers, with anybody I went on television with. Anyone, people know that they can, you know, make whatever discount they want. And in fact, I, I've noticed something interesting, which is which is often under my columns, people make more discount for that than actually they ought, uh, because the view is, in fact, more independent-minded than they thought. But I can't complain about that. They know that I'm a Tory, and so I suppose they read, um, you know, of a certain kind, and they read with that in mind. And I think that's, you know, perfectly reasonable. I think sometimes people have those relationships and that kind of politics and don't reveal it to the readers in quite explicitly. So they have the same problem, but they're not as outspoken about it. Yeah. And it is a, it is really interesting, political friendships and, and journalism. I'd like to come to that in a minute. But beforehand, if we could go back a bit, it's interesting you highlight your friendships with George Osborne and David Cameron. You began, of course, in the SDP, which was an extraordinary period in British politics. And looking back, I mean, I've I've had cause recently to look at the 1983 SDP manifesto, for example, which you probably know off by heart, because I know you remember everything you read. Um, and... I mean, what is striking, I mean, British, we're plucky it out of context, but I think it's not too crude to say that that manifesto was pitched to the left of, say, New Labour. Were you to the left of New Labour then? And have you changed? Or are you one of those who say, look, I've stayed the same, but politics has moved? No. So I've definitely shifted my politics somewhat. I think the experience of, I think in the, you know, in 1983, uh, I was 20. 20 years old. You know, my policies definitely developed as people's do, uh, but it also developed because of things that happened. Um, I, I, I watched what Margaret Thatcher had done between 1979 and sort of 1987 in particular, and um, more of it had worked or been important. And a, a crucial event for that was the, for me was the minor strike than I thought would happen. And as my politics developed, I became more sceptical of things like incomes policy, for example. I decided that Roy Jenkins wasn't right, that we should never move the boundaries of the state. His view was that we'd moved it back and forward and we should keep it in the same place. Um, you know, And the inflation tax that the SDP adapted, adopted, um, which was an, a, an attempt to uh, control inflation through a sort of form of incomes policy, I thought was bound to be of failure was a quite an odd policy actually uh, and and I also came to think for all of it that the STP didn't put enough emphasis on fiscal responsibility that had you know which is one of the things that distances me from the left and also ended up distancing me by the way from Liz Trust too I would argue that um but, but so my politics has definitely changed. What hasn't changed, um, I think is my sense my sort of basic political idea is that political uh 
proposals have advantages and disadvantages. Almost nothing has pure advantage. I tend to favour political systems that encourage uh, moderation and compromise. Um, and um, I and those have not, that has not changed. It's interesting you mentioned moderation. And I think the title of your anthology of columns, very flattering to have a, a book of your columns. Uh, it's, it, it mentions moderation in the title, doesn't it? Um, Everything in moderation. Now, yeah. I remember discussing this with you once on, I think it was Newsnight, about whether George Osborne and David Cameron's economic policies were on the centre ground. Uh, my view is that they weren't. And I think your view is emphatically that they were, or that was your view at the time. Now, retrospectively, do you accept at all that there was, as even Nick Clegg did in his memoir, that there was an ideological element to the Cameron and Osborne economic policies? And and, and, and evidence of that really is that people opposed it. <laughs> you know, people, even the FT opposed it. Martin Wolf and Sam Britton suddenly became Keynesian in their sort of passionate opposition to what I think you always argued was a technocratic decision um, to balance the books. But ha- have you changed at all that view? Sure, there were, there were just not really. I think there were differences in judgment on it. So I had a conversation with Martin Wolf about this very recently. Uh, and and it, by the way, um, while on, on the subject, it was we were really having lunch to discuss his really interesting book, which I do recommend people to read. He talks about the balance between uh, democracy and markets. And I agree with a lot of it. Uh, and so I encourage people who are listening to read it. But Martin's view was uh, this was not economically the right moment to make these choices because we were doing very well economically. Uh, we were doing very poorly economically, and this was going to hold back our growth uh, by doing austerity. And I, and I surprised him by saying, I agree with you, Martin. It wasn't economically the best moment to do it. Uh, but it was still the right moment to do it. And the example that I gave was the decision to freeze public sector pay. Now, the best moment to freeze public sector pay in order to bring down national borrowing is at the moment when everybody else's pay is going up. But the moment I express that, you can see the problem with it. You're never going to get anyone to agree to do that at the moment when everyone else's pay is going up. So there was a tension between the politics and the economics. In the end, while I understood why some economists viewing it purely economically, were totally in favour of, uh, were totally against austerity. And I understood why those people who only saw the politics of it were totally in favour of austerity. But I think if you saw a combination of it, you you would recognise that those people who opposed austerity politically in in 2010 have never found the moment when they thought it was a good idea to bring down borrowing and reduce public spending and are, are never allies for that. And what it boiled down to was really an argument about whether we could go on spending at that rate and whether this was the moment to do something about it. And I thought it was obvious that we had a big borrowing problem. I felt it was a policy that ultimately was the only practical one available. Yes. I suppose the, the, the to make it ideological, some would argue the sort of Keynesian view, you borrow to grow the economy, the growth in the economy helps in the end to repay the deficit. I mean, so there is an argument, isn't there, to be had, not just about timing, but the principle. Yes, there is. Uh, and, and we just dis- I just disagree with it. So let's go. Let's go go back to the question of whether or not this was ideological or not. So it was certainly uh, um, it was certainly a, a fiscally conservative position, uh, and I suppose that there was uh, then a question: at what level do you have fiscal conservatism? Interestingly, I've, I suspect I have a 
while Rishi Sunak and I are both fiscally conservative and rather bonded over that, we I've said to him, I think we probably are fiscally conservative at different levels of public spending. I tend towards a view to think if you take on lots of responsibilities, you have to fund them properly, and probably those responsibilities are appropriate. And so therefore, I'm I'm not, I've never been a libertarian about this, the state, and it's never been a big project of mine to shrink the size of the state. But I am very concerned about fiscal, about fiscal, about fiscally sustainable uh, policies. And I suppose where you're right is they, this was definitely a centre-right rather than a centre-left position. Uh, and the reason it was this, is that in everything there are tensions, and the right chooses, has different priorities in those tensions sometimes. And one of the tensions is you've got, there's a tension between ensuring that we have a properly funded, pro- properly funded public services and ensuring we don't put too much burden on every individual and business to pay for those public services. Because at the margin, you can always increase public spending. It's never the case that the things that you know, one of the ways that I think people on the right sometimes dodge this, they either say um, there's no choice because uh, if you cut load, if you cut taxes, we'll grow so fast, we'll get it all back. Uh, you know, which, by the way, also the, the anti-austerity people also say the same thing. It's their cut their own form of the left Laffer curve, right? Um, and uh, there's also a right Laffer curve, and I, and I don't agree with either of the Laffer curves. Um, I tend towards a fiscally conservative position, so they they say that, and it doesn't work, um, and they're going to spend uh, in the end a lots of money and have to borrow it. The right dodge is to suggest that all this money is always wasted. The truth is people are proposing increased public spending, often on very good things, which are desirable in themselves. And I suppose the centre-right and centre-left differ a little bit on the choices they'd make in those circumstances. Uh, The right, I suppose the centre-right instinct is to say, hold on a minute, let's be restrained. We don't want to burden businesses. People have to have individual freedom. It's nice to have these extra things, but we can't have too many of them or we'll drown the economy in tax. And the centre-left says, uh, well, never mind that, the public provision is more important. And uh, in any case, it probably won't uh, drown, they know that's hyperbole, it won't drown the economy in tax, it doesn't have an impact. And I would tend to, it was definitely a centre-right view rather than a centre-left view. When you first switched to the Conservatives from the SDP, I mean, you became a strategist. I remember talking to you in that role in the build-up to the 97 election, and you've written and spoken uh, in in very humorous terms about the build-up to 97. Did you enjoy the role of being a strategist, an advisor to leaders? I've always enjoyed it because it involves thinking about how people vote, how they think. I, I love reading about that. If you want to know one of the sort of intellectual turning points for me, it came sitting outside Marks and Spencer's in Camden Town while my wife went in to buy a bottle of milk. And she went in, and as you may know with Marks and Spencer's, you can't go in the outdoor. And at the outdoor was a man selling the big issue. And people kept coming out the outdoor and nobody bought the big issue. And then along the street, I was watching from my car while waiting for Nikki to come out, came a a lady and she wanted to go in the outdoor. And the man selling the big issue caught the door before it closed and held it open for her. And um, she could go in. And immediately in my head, I thought, she's going to buy a copy of The Big Issue, which she then did. And I knew that because I'd been reading a book by Robert Cialdini called Influence the Psychology of Persuasion. And it explained to me the idea of reciprocity, uh, which is our automatic reaction to reciprocate 
a uh, favour. And in fact, this is a very deep fairness instinct, the reciprocation of favours. That opened me to a whole literature of which that brilliant book by Cialdini, Influence, was the first one, but I've read lots since then, which really gave me an insight into how people think. And then also one of my best friends, Andrew Cooper, is a brilliant pollster, and we've talked a lot, a lot, a lot about public uh, opinion. So the answer to your question is I've really loved being asked for my advice um, by uh, politicians on strategy and also writing strategic columns. My own regret is, I suppose, during the period in which I did it most intensively, I wasn't very good at it. Um, In particular, I hadn't yet embarked on my knowledge of social psychology. But more important than that, uh, I made the terrible mistake of thinking the electorate was following politics much, much more uh, than it was. It's become a bit of a staple in the last 10 years. I think many more people have begun to understand just how little the electorate is following, something that by the way, Tony Blair really understood very well. He puts it in his book, I think, as well, about how people do that. And I think that's a crucial insight. And when I think back now to the things that I thought might make a difference uh, in before 97, I blush. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the mistake Gordon Brown made. He agonised over every every word uttered and so on. And I think he assumed the entire country was following every twist and turn. Of course, most of them aren't most of the time. Now, for those of us who do follow politics, one of the things that really intrigued me about you is the interviews you did with David Cameron while he was prime minister. Is there any chance they will ever come out? They belong to David. So the, the origin of those was that when David became Prime Minister, I happened to be reading a book by a man called Taylor Branch, who's written a fantastic series of books on the civil rights movement, one of my favourite books, one of my great heroes. When do you get the movement. chance to read all these books? You always start a column with a book, and everyone who reads your column thinks, wow, there's, there's another book. You know, there's... <laughs> well, it's, but it's a very, but I tell you, it's a, these are brilliant books. Right. And, um, uh, Martin Luther King, his bravery is incredible. Anyway, the, these books are... But Taylor Branch also uh, wrote a book based upon uh, interviews he did with Bill Clinton because it turned out he was Bill Clinton's roommate. And a few months after Bill Clinton... at uh, College, and a few months after Bill Clinton became president, he had approached Taylor... Got Taylor Branch to come to a party, approached him and said, I'd like you to come and interview me for my memoirs. And Taylor Branch had um, done this and then used to go out afterwards, sit in the car and write down all the notes and then ended up writing a book on it, which I think Clinton wasn't very happy with. But I had, a, I had a, um, an idea. Uh, David, on, I was reading this book on the day David Cameron became Prime Minister in, 20, in 8th of May 2010. And I thought this is a, an, amazing, um, an amazing idea. So I sent him a text that day saying, how about I do this to you? Anyway, he agreed straight back in text. And um, I started it very soon after um, with the one proviso that he made that they would be his. And I will, and I'll be uh, true to that because I'm not Isabella Oakeshott. Yeah, I was going to say um, you're not going to hand it all over to the Times. No, you weren't obviously uh, handing over to the Telegraph. It, but <laughs> it was totally fascinating. It was an understanding between us that obviously I'd know a lot of background, and that that would in, then inform my journalism, which it did. I often talked about some of the things to uh, to the editor of the paper as well. It was aware of what was happening, and um, and I found it uh, completely absorbing and. Um, I'm sure one day these will be available to historians to use. So we did use a lot of the useful material in in the book. It was it was 
it was very interesting to talk to him. And actually, an experience that I think people should have, it was, it was quite confidence-giving. But it was particularly fascinating over in the run-up to the European referendum. Because while people have said to me lots and lots of times he wouldn't have held the referendum if he'd thought for a moment that he would lose, I actually asked him that question many times before the result. And, I, and that isn't true. He thought he might well lose. I think it's massively in his interest to get them out because you can't, I mean, as you know, I know you disagree with this. Some think he was a rather shallow figure who almost casually led Britain out of the European Union almost by accident, etc., etc. But when you're reflecting at length with someone like you, you can't help but be reflective and 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 deep and delve deep. One of our phrases of this podcast is to delve deep. And, and given that's not his reputation, I think it'll be massively in his interest to broad, not broad. What would you do? Publish them in some form. Anyway, what do you think if you were advising him? Well, I, I, you know, I, I, I do. I think I'd probably better, you know, better be sort of true to him and not not reflect on the conversations I've had with him about sure, it. But sure, it, but I, but I do. I basically do agree with that. Look, I, you know, all I would say is, um, I think they, the conversations I have are, to, are, are great to his credit. I thought he was intelligent and thoughtful and hardworking. You know, these decisions were not flippant. And I think it would reveal the thought process on Europe more clearly. Um, he never thought he was going to necessarily win the European referendum. He thought it was the right thing to do anyway. Going on to the sort of modern Conservative Party, as you mentioned earlier, you've been very critical of Johnson, Truss and so on. And I think you have said or written that you expect Labour to win the next election. Do you plan to play as a columnist stroke Tory uh, a, a, a role in where the party goes next? And, and where do you think it should? Yeah, so I believe having a strong party of the centre-right is very important in Britain. And I don't want to act in ways that would prevent me being effective in that debate, which is the debate about how to create uh, such a party. And um, in addition to which, I've got, you know, a lot of confidence in Rishi Sunak personally, though I've been very disaffected about the Conservative Party. And the reason I've been disaffected is that the centre-right is jostling uh, effectively for predominance in the party with uh, the populist right. You know, the other day the party put out a press uh, a letter, which I, know, I admit it sort of said it was a mistake, but attacking civil servants for their advice uh, on asylum and immigration. And that is a disastrous thing for a Conservative Party to do. And whether or not it was deliberate, it suggests a mindset among whoever it was who wrote that um, wrote that letter and approved it to be sent out that you know that fits with the mindset of a lot of european and american uh, populist right movements and i think conservatism exists to uphold independent institutions and um to be quite cautious about the structures of government that we inherit to protect the integrity in, uh, of, of governing institutions and the rule of law. And in lots of ways, the party become quite cavalier about that. And I, I think that's very concerning. And I, and, you know, I, I think it's important, particularly for people on the centre-right like me, to say that in, in very uh, explicit terms. Um, and so there's going to be, a, yes, there's going to be a, 
a particular there is going to be a political battle over it no question uh, you mentioned if if you like issues such as upholding the neutrality of the civil service and i'm sure you will be committed for them not to break international law and so on. But I was speaking to Nick Timothy on this podcast a few weeks ago, and he was saying he had wanted under Theresa May to move the Tory party closer to the Christian Democrats, for there to be a more active role for the state in various manifestations. And he's actually pursued that a bit since I interviewed him. My my sense with you is that you wouldn't be with him on that. No, I'm, I'm actually not. So I would say with uh, Nick, so one, I said to Nick quite recently that I, I realised that the differences between the two of us were very small by comparison with the uh, commonality com- uh, of us against a kind of much more populist vision of conservatism. And some of the things that happened with Boris Johnson made me feel that my differences of opinion with Nick were um, were you know, I'd wonder what we'd been sort of arguing about. Uh, so we're definitely having a debate at the margins about different issues. I think that he's more right than wrong, actually, funnily enough, about the the uh, role of the state. When I said to you, uh, I was a fiscal conservative, but possibly at higher levels of spending and taxation than Rishi Sunak, it was slightly that that I was referring to. So, for example, I think both Nick and I believe that cutting taxes is not the only route to growth. We would both embrace the idea of industrial strategy, for instance. We both think that, you know, if government uh, is taxing people, you know, somewhere in the region of 40% of income, and lots of people much more than that, um, then it it's obviously the interest of the Conservatives or any political party that wants to govern to have a theory about how the state operates. Just on politics and friendship and so on, has there been occasions where the comment editor has said to you, you know, when, say, George Osborne or David Cameron were in trouble over something, oh, Danny, you know, we, we've got to go for them over this. And you say, well, actually, they're close friends of mine. And I'm not um, going to go for them over this. No, 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 that's never happened for two reasons. One is uh, because um, the comment editor of the Times would never tell me that what to write about anyway. Right. Um, well, uh, I would propose to them what I'm intending to write about. I usually give them two or three subjects, and they'll choose it. Right. I think maybe in the what entire a healthy, time I've been at, healthy exchange compared yeah, to being so the entire told. time I've been at Times, maybe three or four times. I've been asked to write about something different to what I intended a couple of times because it's something else that appeared in the uh, paper on the same subject uh, before once because I'm embarrassed to say this, the editor thought my thesis was boring, which he was correct about. Uh, <laughs> and um, and once, um, only once, because the paper wanted to launch a campaign on Chilcot to get him to get a move on. And I wanted to write a column on the day that we were launching this campaign saying he should take as long as he liked. <laughs> and the editor asked me whether I wouldn't mind writing something else. Yeah, Those are the only reasons. Enough. I've never had that occasion. The, the second reason is because I'm quite open to... Ex- I, when the David Cameron got in trouble on Greensill, I wrote a column which was critical of his behaviour over Greensill. I think he... and. Uh, Actually, he was rather big about it. He, I, uh, he said to me, he thought the criticism. He didn't agree with the criticism, but he thought it was fair. Um, and um, in those occasions, I'm usually, and I, 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 I take the approach of just explaining my relationship with the person I'm writing about uh, to the reader in the article, so that they understand they understood where I was coming from. You know, I, I basically think David Cameron is a moral 
individual. Some of my readers probably disagree with that view, but they knew where I was coming from. Whether they thought uh, I thought he, I was saying he was moral because he was my friend, or as is actually the case, um, you know, he's my friend because I think he's moral. You know, I suppose is beside the point. The readers can take the view that they want they wanted, but I think you have to level with them, and I, as long as you do that, it's fine. Just finally on this. Uh- were you ever tempted, I'm sure you were asked, to do a James Forsyth, to leave political journalism, to go into number 10? I was asked. I thought um, you would be. I didn't know, but I assumed you would be, yeah. Uh, I was not asked actually not so much to be to number 10. I was asked whether I would go into, into ministerial office. I mean, I was asked it informally, by the way, rather than given a formal offer, but it was made clear to me that that was uh, a possibility if I wanted it. And I didn't want it for a, a host of reasons, both high and low uh, reasons. I really love what I'm doing, and I didn't want to stop doing that. Um, I uh, felt that I had more influence um, in the position than I would do necessarily in some in a junior ministerial office in the House of Lords, uh, which was what was on offer. Um, I uh, couldn't afford it. The reason I'm being as frank about that as I am is just because I think people it's just worthwhile people knowing that it was when I said I couldn't afford it. Of course, my family could live a very decent life and lots and lots of people earn lots less so afford it is probably a bad way to put it but it would certainly have been difficult for us to sustain our not you know ultra mega lavish lifestyle in london on that so i didn't want to it was it was paid less than an mp who's been a minister and i didn't think we could i thought it would be difficult for our family finances and i also thought it would be difficult to go out of journalism and ever get back into it uh and i didn't want to leave because i love it i love what i do so um it wasn't a difficult decision and interestingly enough i was asked you know once or twice i made my view clear and then i wasn't asked subsequently to that so i haven't had to make that decision over and over again james was in a slightly different position i think first of all he'd never worked in number 10 and i'd already worked for john major and and I'd also been an advisor to William Hague for years. I'd done kind of big jobs like that already, and he obviously hadn't. Secondly, it's very difficult for him to sort of stop being uh, Rishi Sunak's best man. And I think that did make him the kind of columns that he wanted to write where it was a bit difficult for him. So I under, understood it. I think there was a way around it, um, which was simply to state, you know, where he was coming from. But you'd have had to state it again and again. I think that would have made it difficult. Yeah, yeah. Every now and again, he would put it in brackets. Those brackets would appear where he would <laughs> refer to that. Um, finally, you're, I'm speaking to you. You're at Chelsea. Um, you're on the board. What I find fascinating about politics is actually journalists can get behind the scenes and discover. It's much harder in football. Uh, you, you, you know, it's quite closed football, isn't it? Were you now behind the scenes? You must be. You must think to yourself, "Wow, what a story!" Virtually every day, because you it's are now yes. behind the scenes. What's it? I mean, what's it like? It's incredible, and and I realise it's something you're completely right. I've been a fan of Chelsea's for fifty years, and um, it's amazing how you never really get any. And I remember I once met Bruce Buck at some event of the the Chelsea. Uh, Bruce Buck was the former chairman of Chelsea at some event on anti-Semitism, and I thought it was fantastic. I'd actually met Bruce Buck, um, and um, you know the idea that I'd end up doing uh, 
this work never occurred to me. I find it very intellectually interesting, um, both the on the field, but also, you know, we put a lot, we're putting a lot of effort into trying to make sure, to trying to modernise Chelsea off the field, um, both commercially, but also in terms of relationships with fans and fan groups um, and engagement uh, with, you know, with the people who are part of the Chelsea community. So, uh, and I found that totally, totally fascinating thing to do. Yeah, and presumably you've got to know the players and everything. I mean, which which fans think they know them, but they don't. And actually, most football journalists don't these days. So no, that must was, be fascinating. It's been completely fascinating. And you do, you get to to understand, um, you know, streams of revenue and all that sort of stuff, all the better. But also, obviously, you know, because you are you attend the game, you're sitting between the two sporting directors or next to the owner, um, you uh, you end up, let's put it this way, you end up having a, a very high quality of in-game commentary. And just finally, somehow you found the time to write a book about your parents were they they were uh, it's coming out in a couple of months but they were both in concentration camps were they yes, well, the, the book's called hitler stalin mum and dad uh, my my grandfather on my mother's side uh, was one of the leaders of german jews in the 1920s and then became the sort of archivist of the anti-nazi movement he had come to london um just at the time when holland was invaded and his family was trapped there including my mother my mother was in belson uh and um then uh ended up surviving the war. Well, people have to read the book, but due to some quite extraordinary coincidences and pieces of luck. Um, my father was born in Lviv, Lviv, when he was born there, now in uh, Ukraine. And it was part, he was, um, my grandfather was arrested and was in the Gulag. My father was deported to a state collective farm on the borders of Siberia. Uh, and um, I've managed to put together their story, tell uh, what their experiences were, uh, give some of the historical background to allow people to understand how it happened. And it's been a very absorbing project. Uh, absorbing. It must have been incredibly intense as well. I mean, it must have been yeah, an extraordinary really. experience for you to do the research and to write. Yes, about I, your... most of it, my parents were very open about it. And most right. of it, most of the basic things I knew, although when I particularly went over my father's story and I realised, you know, there's a part in the story which he's often said uh, he went from the state collective farm to the nearest town, it's called Semipalatinsk. And when you actually read the uh, transcripts of his testimony carefully, he says um, this was four days by horse and cart. Uh, That's the nearest town. And, you know, a lot of little things like that, I realised the, the, the sort of nature of his experience was extraordinary. And also when I learnt more about how my great aunt um, and and my mother's first cousin had died in Sobibor and I'd begun to know what that place was like. That was something I hadn't really understood. And that was moving yeah, very No, difficult. it sounds like we're already getting rave previews, reviews. Mind you, it's from people like George Osborne, your best friend. So. <laughs> he is, obviously. He does and he, he, he yeah, admits no, no, that, but, but um, has, various other people has, have been very nice it, about it's it. It's going to be an aston- extraordinary read uh, for us all in a couple of months' time. Danny, I'd better let you get back to Chelsea, Columns, the Lords, whatever you're doing next. Thanks so much for giving up your time this afternoon. Much appreciated. Thank you. I'm Ros Taylor with news of Oh God, What Now? The politics podcast that's never going to leave its voter ID at home. On Friday's show, it's six months until the US election and Donald Trump is stuck sitting on trial in a New York courthouse. 
Is he bulletproof or can Joe Biden turn around the polls? In the second half, it's local elections week, but we've steadily taken power away from local authorities. What if we gave it back? And in the extra bit for supporters, is there a right level of ruthlessness in politics? That's Oh God, What Now? with me, Ros Taylor, Raphael Baer, Hannah Fern, guest Nikki McCann-Ramirez, out now, wherever you get your podcasts. So there we are. That was uh, Danny Finkelstein, Lord Finkelstein. I think it's called Daniel Finkelstein on the column. Said at the beginning, lots of uh, uh, manifestations of Danny Finkelstein. Uh, Reflecting on his career and the Tory party. And it's a really interesting theme. It's a bit incestuous, but uh, friendship and politics and political journalism. And there are so many different views about uh, the course to take. You can get someone like Adam Bolton, you know, he used to be political editor of Sky News, who says he doesn't even vote to maintain a kind of distance between his own views and his uh, political journalism. Others say things like, you can't have friendships between political journalists and politicians. You can have friendly relations. Uh, Then there is Isabel Oakshop, you know, who I think uh, one way of putting it would be she takes a different view. And then, you know, there are other things where you do, because you're in that same world with similar interests, form uh, friendships. And I think Danny Finkelstein takes the right approach in just being absolutely open about it. Um, But sometimes it's quite hard. I mean, he was lucky if the Times comment editor has never told him to go for one of his friends. Uh, When I was at The Independent towards the end, it became a very insecure newspaper. And sometimes uh, the comment editor would say, have you seen the front page of the Daily Mail? We we should hammer so-and-so. And And I say, well, you know, I, I don't agree with the front page of the Daily Mail, it became very difficult. Um, but uh, yeah, and what a what a repertoire, you know, say one I kind of view with some, uh, well, admiration and envy, really. But um, it's also interesting that I think we're on the edge, whatever happens in the next year and a half, of a very interesting debate about the future of the Tory party. We, us lot in the cooperative, is already fully engaged in that debate wherever we stand on uh, politics because, you know, whatever happens in the next election, as we've discussed many times, England tends to vote Conservative. You know, Labour interrupts the natural order of things. So the future of that party, where it goes next, is very interesting. And can it leave behind the spell that Margaret Thatcher cast in her uh, period in office, a spell that remains potent to this very day? Um, What is One Nation conservatism? Can that be revised in a way that is credible? Anyway, these conversations we're having on this podcast will be exploring these themes. In some ways, it's an interesting time to do it before an election. But I think it only gives us a hint as to what will happen after an election, because obviously most Tories will be focusing on the coming election, although the indiscipline of that parliamentary party means that some of the debates are already opening up, no doubt, to uh, Rishi Sunak's torment at times. Anyway, look, thank you so much for listening. Uh, We'll all gather again early next week. Maybe you're listening to this after early next week, but we'll all gather again to make sense of it all amidst all the twists and turns of British politics. Thanks so much. See you soon. Bye. Bye.